Hello and welcome to the February instalment of the Shameless Book Club. This month we are looking at best-selling author Nick Hornby's eighth novel, Just Like You. The book follows two protagonists, 22-year-old Joseph and 42-year-old Lucy, who fall in love despite coming from two very different worlds. Joseph is a young black DJ trying to find his place in the world, while Lucy is a white English teacher and mum of two who has recently separated from her addict ex-husband. This isn't just the story of a juicy love affair though. After all, the book is set in 2016 in England and Brexit is the backdrop of their union, meaning conversations about politics and race relations are littered throughout. So did Hornby pull it off? Can a white man write about the experience of a black man? Will we pull towards the romance? of Lucy and Joseph and does Nick Hornby's reputation live up to the hype in his eighth book? We are about to find out. Today I am joined as always by my co-hosts Annabelle Lee and Michelle Andrews. This is going to be juicy. Hi. Hello. (laughs) Guys, the first place I want to start today is with Nick Hornby himself. He is a stupidly well-known writer, I would say internationally, but particularly in the UK. So I want to start by chatting about the hype leading into this book. Mish, can you kick us off? Yeah, a little synopsis on Nick Hornby's life. He is 63 years old. He's the author of a slew of best-selling books, best known probably for his novels High Fidelity and About a Boy. Both of those novels were turned into movies. You guys might kind of have pictures in your head or like scenes in your head. High Fidelity was a 2000 film featuring John Cusack. About a Boy was a 2002 film starring Hugh Grant and Tony Collette. He's also, though, Nick Hornby's also written a memoir called Fever Pitch that did really, really well. And when I say really well, he has sold, as of 2018, cumulatively, five million copies of his work. Yeah, it's quite a few copies. As (laughs) two people in this room who have written a book, we have not sold five million copies of our work. What I found interesting, Annabelle, is I didn't realise how influential he was in UK culture. Like in 2004, in a poll for the BBC, he was named the 29th most influential person in British culture. Did you know much about him before we jumped into this book? I had no idea who Nick Hornby was. Although when I looked him up, I saw that he is also a screenplay writer. So he wrote the screenplays for some of our favourite movies, like Wild with Reese Witherspoon, who I read that he had met Reese a while back and she was a fan of one of the short stories he'd written. Mm. And then he was trying to look for the rights later on for Wild, but no one was optioning it. So right. then he approached Reese herself and she was like one of the only ones that was interested. Hence the creation of this successful movie, Wild. I didn't know he was part of that. That's yeah. really interesting. I did know, I mean, actually I didn't know this. I, <laughs> I realised the minute I read the book because I deep dived Nick Hornby pretty heavily that he was involved with About a Boy. I mean, he wrote the book and I do love that movie. Like, it's a I great movie. I adore that movie. What I find really interesting about Nick is that he started as a teacher and it wasn't until his early 30s that he wrote the book Fever Pitch Mish that you touched on. What's curious about Fever Pitch is it's a book all about football. So Nick Hornby's obsessed with Arsenal, the football team, and he started writing a book just about soccer. Sounds interesting. It went bananas. This is what I mean. It's really interesting as three women who don't really watch soccer to think about how bananas this book went. But there was a line in a 2005 interview he did with The Guardian where the journalist wrote, by the time he started writing Fever Pitch in his early 30s, he was at his lowest ebb. He had given up teaching English to pursue his brilliant career, but the writing was going nowhere. So he was a bit lost and he's given heaps of interviews about his late 20s and early 30s about the fact that he didn't really know what he wanted to do. His writing wasn't going anywhere. And and then Fever Bitch came about apparently out of nowhere. Like he wrote it as a tribute to football 
novel, part memoir, part tribute to football. Right. Um, and apparently it was seen as like this new birth of literature, which is called Lads Lit. <laughs> and this is the premise of the book. It consists, and this is according to Wikipedia, it consists, <laughs> so, you know, serious sourcing here, it consists of several chapters in chronological order from the time the author first became a football fan as a child until his early 30s. Each chapter is about a football match that he remembers watching. It was published in 1992. I don't know if this is just my naivety, but I am blown away that something like that has sold a million copies just in the UK. What I'm about to say is very, very gendered. But could this be similar to like a Zoe Foster Blake releasing a book about her love of beauty? Totally. And kind of her relationship and with people. Sure. And that's very, very gendered. I'm a huge sport fan, not a huge soccer fan, but huge AFL fan. And I've read a lot of AFL books and it's surprisingly enthralling is when it? you read them. I, I don't promise. believe that. Yes. <laughs> I will not read Fever Pitch. I'm sorry, Nicole. It's not my kind of thing. Yeah, so that's that was his first book and that was back in 1992, but he wasn't sort of like this initial breakout star. I think Fever Pitch initially was very surprising in its success. I want to quickly touch on the general reception of Just Like You before mm. we dived into it because before I read this book, there were some really positive glowing reviews online. Did you guys find the same thing? And when I say online, I mean more like the the Guardians and the Washington Post. I hadn't really looked at the Guardian or the Washington Post. I'd only looked in our Facebook group. Yeah, right. And that's where I saw a lot of negativity. <laughs> Not so positive. And <laughs> it set me up for failure. Like I was reading it thinking it was going to be shit. Which, I mean, I have thoughts, so they're complex, but it wasn't as bad as I thought right. initially. Right. Well, as far as the reviews go, I did the same thing as you, Zara. I had read some reviews before I read the book. I didn't go too far in because I didn't want to spoil it for myself. But I had also seen names floating around in juxtaposition to this book that made me think it was going to be a really great read. I saw Dolly Alderton threw her weight behind it. She spoke about it in our interview with her. Yeah, she really loved it, really enjoyed it. However, and I don't speak for Dolly when I say this, like God knows what went on behind Dolly loving the book. She could have just really liked it. I do think when you have a really influential, massive name like Nick Hornby, it is sticking your neck out if you are a British author, and you might know him personally, you might be his friend, to really analyse and critique his book without bias. I think perhaps Nick Hornby's previous works have kind of dragged this book along and maybe it's riding on those coattails. Because I've read one review, particularly in The Guardian, that spoke about, and I quote, vicious wit paradoxically interwoven with tenderness and empathy. And I simply thought this was a review of another book. Like that could not be the review of the Just Like You that I read. This is really interesting because we are sort of jumping a bit ahead. I mean, the sentiment is pretty clear from the outside, I think, from a lot of us. But I think I liked this. I think we're probably going to go in a lightning scale. I think whether or not you liked this book had a lot to do genuinely with when you read it. And I, for context, read this book over summer before I had seen anything about it in our Facebook group, before I'd read any review on Instagram. And I was also in a very calm headspace where I was racing through like 10 books. And so it was a really easy, charming read. I would say that it did have vicious wit. I thought it was funny. We're going to get into this a bit more in a second. (laughs) But I think when touching back to what you said, Annabelle, when you're like, it's hard not to be clouded by a book when you've read all these reviews about it. You sent me a review that you'd read where two people had given it one star saying, Mm. I don't want to read this book now. So when Mm. you're going in with that kind of attitude, I think you're going to be at a loss. Oh, for sure. I was so confused by the end of it because I... I think I enjoyed it. I thought it was an easy read. As you said, like I flew through it, which speaks to how good of a writer Nick Hornby is. Yeah, look, we're about to get into it, but I've got to disagree with you there. <laughs> Let's start with the, the political side of that. I wanted to start with this voicemail from Courtney. 
Hey girls, I'm calling about Just Like You by Nick Hornby. I really wanted to like this book, but I ended up absolutely hating it. The blurb suggested an affair between a 40-year-old woman and a 20-year-old man, but somehow it ended up being incredibly boring and I was not prepared for the backdrop of Brexit and racial tension. I read this so quickly just so I could be done with it. I really didn't like this one. I think this is one of the most common conversations I'm seeing coming out of this book about the fact that it was set, you know, in 2016 in the backdrop of Brexit, but also about this idea that this is a 63-year-old white man writing from the perspective of, uh, yes, a white 42-year-old female, but mainly a 22-year-old black man. Annabelle, I'll start with you. Where does your gut lie when it comes to this white man writing about this black man's experience? I didn't like it. I think I was pretty conscious of it throughout the book, which is never yeah. a good sign. Yeah. So Hornby actually touched on why he decided to write from the perspective of a black man in an interview with The Times. He told them that he'd pretty much predominantly written about white men in the past, for example, about a boy, and he's kind of had enough. So on writing narratives about white men, Hornby told The Times this. He said, I don't know if I want to write about them anymore. I don't know what I've got to say about them. I guess his reasoning for writing the character Joseph then was that he was out of material. I mean, it's a really common phrase in publishing that creators and writers throw around that you should write what you know, but you can only do that for so long, right? Like he's written seven books at this point. He needs to bring a fresh perspective to the table. He can't just rewrite about a boy in 2020 and expect to land now in 2021 with us three sitting around a table. My first thought is, and I know we're going to have a debate about this and I really want to sink our teeth into it because I think it's important. In the ideal world, the world that the three of us would all want and I'm sure all the listeners would want, there would be greater representation in the writing industry, that we wouldn't be looking at an industry where 90% of books, according to the New York Times, are published by white people and only 10% are written by ethnic minorities. I think we all agree that's not okay, that needs to change. In an ideal world, all of the perspectives or as many as possible from all minorities would come from people with lived experience in that. It wouldn't be coming from people who are just pretending that they know or trying to educate themselves through repurposing things they've read elsewhere. That said, if you are a white man with a huge audience and you have a platform, is it not your responsibility to write about experiences that aren't just those of cisgendered white men. Don't we want white authors to be talking about something else than the white experience? And I have no issue with Nick Hornby writing about people from different walks of life. I actually think that makes for a richer literary experience. What I have an issue with in this instance is that Nick Hornby made a huge chunk of this book about Joseph's race. And I think that was a mistake. I love the idea that he would write about like a black man being the protagonist. How often do we see that from white writers? What I didn't adore was him inserting so much of his self into the book and into the race relations, because I think that is not what we want to hear. And I don't think that's his place to make him the centerpiece or the philosopher behind current race relations in the UK. Yeah, well, I get what you mean. I mean, it's like, yes, have a diverse range of characters, but don't speak to an experience you can't speak to, which is what he definitely tried to do. I mean, there was an interesting quote he gave in that same Times piece, I think we both read Annabelle, when he explained why, again, he'd written this character. And he said, because the majority of my books are set in North London, and it began to seem like an omission or a lie 
why when I open my door, I'm in a multiracial neighborhood, yet I haven't written about that. Should my book stay white for the rest of my life? I don't think so. The thing is, The Guardian pointed out that his attempt to inhabit the point of view of a black man in his 20s did sit uneasily. And I think it was because his attempts at discussing race relations to me felt a bit shallow. Like I can't find anywhere in all his interviews and in a lot of interviews, almost all of them, he has asked about this exact fact, an admission of the research that he did or the work that he did in order to writing this character Mm. and getting it right. Like I can't say that at all. It kind of feels like it fell out of his brain and I don't think that is necessarily right. Just to your point though, Mish, when you say like, don't we want white authors to be writing about experiences that aren't theirs? Like, yes, to an extent, but I think the danger of us saying, okay, well, if we don't have an equal publishing system right now, maybe white authors need to start writing about other things, is it looks a bit like a band-aid, that suddenly we look like we have a far more diverse range of stories than we actually have because people are writing stuff that's not theirs. That's the issue I see, that it looks a bit like a band-aid. To clarify, I don't think white authors should just start now to try and fix Mm -hmm. a problem. We're not fixing any problem by getting white authors to suddenly write about the black experience. I'm saying writers in general should be talking and exploring all facets of life and not just sitting in their own little comfy pocket of the world and writing about that alone. I absolutely think the publishing industry needs to change. Like I absolutely truly believe that there needs to be greater representation of minorities of all walks of life. However, Nick Hornby in his position right now is not going to dismantle an entire system. Do I want him to write a diverse range of characters? Yes. Do I want him to insert himself to the level and the degree and the authority that he did here? No. Yeah, I think that perhaps if Nick Hornby thinks that he's written all that he could as a white man, he should just step back and maybe try and platform other people, other voices, other people of colour. To your point, Zara, about just like you being kind of a shallow interpretation of the black experience, I read a review in The Guardian that said this, does he tell us much that we don't already know or think we don't already know? On this, I'm not sure. Just like you invites comparison with Kylie Reid's Such a Fun Age and seems to me to lack some of that novel's sharpness. I don't think there's much in here to challenge or discomfort. I don't think it's a coincidence that such a fun age was like critically celebrated and this one isn't. Mm. Nick Hornby, like he's clearly a talented writer based on his previous successes, but a white man writing about race is never going to be as effective or as compelling. Like no matter how much research you do or no matter how many people you talk to, you're never going to have lived that. Yeah. And also, should you be making money off that? Like that's a that's a blunt question. I think it's interesting. I actually really agree with you. Nick Hornby, 63. This is not an author starting out his career. And it's not like he doesn't have work coming up. What I found interesting is in an interview with Penguin, he said that he's not writing another book for a while, but he has written a second series of a TV comedy, State of the Union. He's also got this huge TV project that he's not allowed to talk about yet because it's edging towards a deal. If you're 63 and have a, a plethora of work at your disposal, both in screen writing and you could probably get any book deal you want why aren't you then putting that energy at 63 when you've got such an incredible career already established to raise up other people like I just kind of wish that this was more of the discussion now when he was doing interviews about this book can I clarify before we move on because I think the listeners will be thinking this as well are you guys comfortable with Nick Hornby writing a male protagonist who happens to be black are you comfortable with him commenting on race relations or do you want him to only write white characters I think we're actually in the same position because I think I'm fine with him writing a black character I'm not fine with the way he wrote about the race relations because I think generally from a lot of commentary and reading it's fallen flat my gut tells me it's icky but I get what you're saying Mish and I think though that if 
he did write about a 22-year-old black man and didn't really delve into the race stuff. People might come back and say he didn't explore that character enough or yeah, there wasn't enough depth in that character. How can you write about a 22-year-old black man without exploring all the things that a 22-year-old black exactly. man could so experience? So it's just best it's, to back off. Yeah. <laughs> it's a grey area, yeah. right? But yeah. I think he went 100% of the way when he probably could have hovered around the 25%, touched on it without making it the central plot line of basically every interaction Joseph had. And I don't know if three of us sitting around these mics are going to be able to come up with a solution to it's probably a bit beyond us, which is why it's a hard conversation to have because as humans, you inherently want to be able to find a solution, but here I can't see one. Yeah, and it goes far deeper and far beyond just any one author or one book. It's a system that needs to be completely torn apart and restitched back together. What about Brexit then? Because whenever Brexit came up, and I acknowledge this is probably my own privilege in that I have physical and emotional distance from Brexit, the choice to leave the EU didn't impact me and probably will never impact me in the way that it would people living in the UK. But every time I see Brexit come up, I do, like I've got to be honest with myself, I'm kind of like, ugh, drained by it. Like I truly don't care about Brexit that much. I found the political storylines in this story to be draining and banal and kind of vanilla at times. Did you guys feel the same or did you enjoy the Brexit stuff? What about you, Annabelle? When it was first mentioned, I really hoped it would just be a mention. I know nothing about Brexit. So I hate to admit that I had to watch a couple of Brexit explainers on YouTube because I really had no idea what it was all about. I didn't mind it, actually. I thought it was a good illustrative way of talking about how people have different views and Mm. how that affects day-to-day life and how sometimes we just have to have these discussions, tough discussions when we have different opinions. Mm. Yeah. And also that you can't put people in boxes. Like I actually really enjoyed the Brexit stuff. Like Mm. I liked that it was on the backdrop of that because I think it speaks to a society that was feeling quite tense at the time and quite emotional. I think a lot of people did feel quite emotional about it. I mean, you think about those two teachers in the classroom fighting about it at work. I think that one thing I'm reading about Nick Hornby a lot and that I agree with is that he does write with pretty good empathy and I think that was shown really clearly when he wrote about Brexit because I think it was a far less shallow interpretation of Brexit than perhaps I was actually initially expecting given the shallowness of the start of the book and I thought that he really portrayed people that voted to leave in a pretty empathetic way and I think that's really important for our discourse at the moment to understand why people vote in the ways that they do. Totally agree. Coming up after the break, what the hell did we make of that surprise ending? But first, a word from today's sponsor. Hey guys, Sarah here. I've pretty much loved every book I've read in book club, but I was really freaking out about the fact that I absolutely could not get into this book at all. The characters were all so blur, and I found the dialogue so confusing at times, I had to go back and reread to work out exactly who was saying what, and it just bothered me so much. All right, guys, it's time to talk characters like we always do. I want to ask you who landed, who didn't. Mish, I'm going to start with you. I don't care which one you start with. Who landed, who didn't. Just give me something. (laughs) I'm so sorry, but so few people in this book landed for me. I truly didn't care about any of them. I wasn't (laughs) invested in whether Joseph and Lucy ended up together. I want to start with Lucy, though. I thought she was rude and blunt (gasps) and cold. And so much of the way that she interacted with other people seemed really unrealistic to me. I was reading the way she was interacting and just like... The way she cut people off or cut people down, I understand it's one thing not to like 
the people you found yourself being friends with. It's another thing to be blatantly rude to them when they're just asking about your life or taking an interest in you. I truly found myself at times confused as to why I was supposed to like Lucy. Annabelle. I'm so confused. Did I read the wrong character? (laughs) I agree with you. I thought Lucy was so sweet and I thought she was empathetic. But to her friends, she was awful. Was she? I thought she was pretty aware of herself and the people around her and how they may have differences. Zara, thoughts? I agree with you, Annabelle. I thought Lucy was really believable. I didn't think she was rude or cold. I think there was this sense of like tiredness that certainly made sense about her. She seemed really tired with the world. I mean, God, she's just been with a husband who is turning up at her house drunk, high, God knows what. She's had to look after two kids, sister working full time. I can't imagine the burden that that would carry. And she just seemed really tired with the world. It made sense to me with all of that in mind that she would be drawn to someone young and someone really different. Like I just got the sense that she was someone that wanted to shake up her life and that's why it felt so jarring when she was sitting at the table with these sort of middle-aged friends that she couldn't see herself in anymore. And I I think the scenes that I loved most about her were when she was trying to dance to Joseph's song and she was being Mm. a bit dorky and I think that was probably her in a nutshell, like that carefree attitude, but the world had sort of beat her down a little bit. I'm really happy you brought up a few things when you were talking then. Firstly, about the dancing, I agree. I actually wrote down in my notes, page 134 was probably my favourite part of the book when that dancing scene happened. I think that was one of the very few moments in this book where I was actually shown the event as it happened. I found that with this entire book, it was almost like a bird's eye view that I got a glossed over, rushed explanation of the actual events that just took place. And I was kind of getting like a rehashed retelling by a friend who didn't have time to tell me what was actually going on. With the stuff with Lucy's ex-husband, Paul, I would have felt so much more empathy and sympathy for her if I had been taken to the actual events that happened before the book began. Like, give me some flashbacks. Give me the nitty gritty. Don't just gloss over and be like, oh, well, I had to change his soiled pants once or twice. Like, no, tell me the actual real world experience of living with a partner who has addiction problems and who is wreaking havoc on your and your children's life. I felt like that entire story was just completely glossed over and it left me feeling cold. I didn't need it. No, I agree with you, Zara, because I feel like the character of Lucy that was painted, her vulnerability and her empathy kind of already showed what she'd been through in a way. Yeah, I agree with that. It's like, I I don't know, I just didn't find myself wanting or needing it because I felt like it was very clear how she was in the space that she was in and why she was feeling the things that she did. I mean, I agree with you to a point that some of the storylines felt a bit like, hang on, like, I can't see myself here. Like, it feels very glossed over. For example, when Joseph's song suddenly gets a little bit popular, (laughs) and he starts going on tour or whatever the fuck it is. I couldn't see any of that. I couldn't imagine it. I didn't know what the hell was going on. Yeah, he didn't seem very passionate about it either. It was so confusing. (laughs) I I wanted to be like, how well is this song doing? Like, is it on the radio? Is it going viral? Or is it just like getting picked up by a few ears? But this is the thing, right? Like, going to Joseph, even the night of no jazz when he first sleeps with Lucy, we didn't get any explanation of the sex. You wanted how, the sex. No, of course I did. This <laughs> I was know. so PG I and agree. it was so vanilla and we didn't get any of the good stuff or the intimacy. Like every time sex was mentioned, it was like, oh, they're lying together in sheets and they've just had this deep and meaningful conversation. <laughs> Tell me about the sex. They never really said the word sex. Every time I read about sex, it reminded me that the guy who was writing this book was a six-year-old white <laughs> man <laughs> because they, he just kept saying lovemaking and he didn't ever really talk about the sex. And I was like, this seems weird. It was, it was very funny <laughs> that he didn't want to touch sex. I will agree with you. Joanna Briscoe wrote for The Guardian a very funny line where she wrote, the youth speak alone, the pings and lols, the DJ friend called Pat. 
pound man and a girl <laughs> called Jazz in her spangly top and face glitter seem at best dated even for 2016. I have to agree. Like, to be honest, when we're thinking about all of this with hindsight, it feels very much like Nick Hornby has been great at writing the white man experience <laughs> and he's tried to do what people have maybe told him he should be doing, which is writing about other people, but he's just not very good at it. Like, he's not good at writing the youth. The pound man thing was just not very believable at all. With all of that in mind, though, as I said at the start, I read this in summer when I was on a really nuts reading streak and I found it a really easy book to read. I flew through it, I reckon, in a day and a half. And as someone who spends a little bit of time writing, I like reading books like this because I look at the writing and I think it's much better than anything else (laughs) I could do. And the thing that stood out so much to me was the dialogue, how beautifully the dialogue was written. Like, it's so obvious to me that he has made a career out of screenwriting because the way he writes interactions between people is fast and quick. And he writes them so well, like, I can actually imagine sitting with my friends or my family having exactly the same conversation. Like, he observes well about how people have conversations. This is going to sound niche as well. She's waiting for me to jump in. She can see my face disagreeing rolling. I loved how he wrote interactions between family. I adored how he wrote the dialogue between Lucy's two sons. I also adored how he wrote the dialogue between Joseph, his mum and his sister. Like I could imagine sitting with my family in those conversations and having exactly those conversations, which is perhaps a long-winded way of saying I didn't really adore any of the characters. I didn't really adore the storyline to much of an extent, but I did enjoy the writing and that's why I flew through this book. Do you agree with that? I do agree. I loved the dynamic between Lucy and her sons, although I would say that her sons seemed far too perceptive for like eight and ten year olds. <laughs> Absolutely, but I don't care. Also, were the sons twins? No. Eight and ten. Oh, yeah. Okay, I got <laughs> Did you even concentrate? <laughs> yeah, I was trying to. It was so friggin' boring. Mish, I'm picking up that you don't agree with me. Not at all. And this isn't me being influenced by other reviews because Zara read this book before I did. And oh, I told, told me that I loved the dialogue. The best parts of the dialogue. So I was really looking to love it. And yeah. Zara and I often agree on dialogue. Like, I think this is the first time we've disagreed. I found the dialogue in this book so tricky to follow, as in I often had to go up and reread it and figure out who was saying what when, which I've never struggled with. I love with that in about it. That I'll I, agree with you though. I loved that it was kind of just like this quick bing, 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 and it was like a puzzle. I loved that. You couldn't say you couldn't tell who was saying what, and that's so important. And I disagree. I didn't read this and think this would be a conversation that would actually happen. I don't know anyone who speaks the way. These people did. And that's why I feel like I'm in my own universe because you guys liked this book and I really deeply disliked it. To be honest, there's a real split between our Facebook groups. Some people saying it was like a charming, easy-to-read book. Some people fucking hated it. I think the dialogue perhaps will be one of the most divisive things because if you hated the dialogue, you're going to hate the book. If you loved the dialogue, it's going to be pretty easy to get through. Yeah. Let's talk about Joseph. What did you guys think about him? You have thoughts, Annabelle. I hated Joseph. I mean, you guys... (laughs) Oh my God, this is amazing. (laughs) You guys touched on the dance scene earlier on in the book. And I liked that scene as well, but I didn't like what it brought out in Joseph in that his response to Lucy dancing was terrible. It just made him seem like such a terrible human and I would like to read out a passage. Go, go if you like. So this is on page 251. Lucy has just boogied again, I think, or he was thinking (laughs) about her boogieing. It reads, Joseph had once broken up with a girl because she bought a horrible coat. 
He hadn't realised that was the reason he couldn't go on seeing her until a lot later when he started to wonder why, when he remembered her, she always had that coat on. He'd seen her with nothing on and in her underwear and in jeans and a tight jumper, but the coat haunted him. It was fake fur, although God knows what animal it was pretending to be, and it drew attention to itself and to her and to him and he couldn't forgive it. In every other way, the girl was nice and she was really hot. He didn't want Lucy's dancing to become like that coat. Lucy was wonderful. She had just said something sweet and supportive and loyal, and maybe he was looking at things the wrong way. Yes, she was oldish and he was youngish, but it was his youth that was the problem, not her age. He was too young to let stupid things go, but how are you supposed to learn? I just Mm. think who responds to someone that way and how is that someone's gut reaction to be like, uh, Lucy's the worst, yada, 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 and I hate that he... (laughs) (laughs) Yada, yada, yada. Clearly articulate. I just hate that he pinned it down to being young because I am young too and although there is a part of this that is relatable in that, yes, we think stupid things sometimes, but I just think the crux of that passage is that he seems pretty self-involved. And judgmental. Exactly. Yeah. Guys, he's watching a middle-aged woman dance. How many of you – if my mum – sorry, mum, you'll be listening to this (laughs) – I cringe when my older sister dances and it's got but nothing not to dating do with them. her. No, but, but you're not having sex with them. You also get the ick. Like we've spoken about the ick yeah. before and how you can get that with partners. Like I got the ick from one partner because he was eating chicken thigh for breakfast every morning <laughs> with carrot and celery. Like the ick is a very potent real thing. And if you think your partner dances like a bit of an idiot, that felt like one of the most relatable things to me. Sure, it's not the most likable thing about Joseph, but it was for sure the most believable thing about him as a 22-year-old. I think I agree with both of you, to be totally honest with you. Like, I think I didn't not connect with Joseph. Like, I did connect with him. I could imagine him. But I felt he was pretty shut off. Like, he felt like a classic 20-something man who hadn't quite come to terms with his own emotions. And so I couldn't quite understand him as much but then I think he's 22 and Annabelle what you're 23 23 yeah you are much more mature than Joseph (laughs) much more in tune with your own emotions I think that's what I mean he perhaps seems real like someone my age I just wouldn't really want to associate with him (laughs) no one's asking you to be his friend he's not real he reminds me of someone that people would encounter in the current dating sphere 100% All right, guys, my last voicemail for today is from Ashley she wants to talk about the ending Hi, Mish, Sarah and Annabelle. I literally just finished reading it, but honestly thought it could have ended a whole lot sooner. I would have liked it to end towards the middle when they're at the coast house. They had this really beautiful friendship, a really interesting kind of dynamic that was developing between the two of them. I felt like their fling had served its purpose and they were moving and growing. Yeah, when they started dating each other again and things were getting messy and there was lots of insecurities I really stopped enjoying the book thanks so much guys all right if I was to ask both of you how you would finish this book I want you to tell me how you would finish this book (laughs) Annabelle I'll start with you what did you think about the ending and would you have written it the same way or would you have written it differently I felt fine about the ending. As a reader, I enjoyed that they ended up together, even oh though I God. didn't like them as a did. couple. I'm, like, we're on very much the same page about this book, I think. It <laughs> seemed like, yeah, a happy ending, even though I didn't like Joseph and I thought Lucy was far too empathetic towards Joseph. I liked that they ended up together and he seemed to have grown by the end, even though we only got a few pages at the end of how they ended up together. 
We've uh, poisoned both of your teas <laughs> in the office this week. It didn't seem accurate, though. It feels like if this were a relationship in real life, that wouldn't be how it ended. Exactly. That's what I've got written down. I just don't believe that they would end up together in real life. But perhaps it doesn't matter because it's like a it's a fiction book. Like, who the fuck cares? So in the context <laughs> of it being a fiction book, I loved them ending up together because I'm exactly the same as you. I am a sucker for a happy ending. <clears throat> Here we go. My <laughs> TED Talk. If I was to edit this book and be able to have free reign with the ending halfway through. The changes I would make would be as follows. I would have Joseph meet Hannah earlier on. It would be kind of like this love triangle where Joseph and Lucy are official, their boyfriend and girlfriend, but he also finds himself drawn to a woman who is just as alluring, just as much of a dating prospect for him, but also his own age in the middle. And I would have had that cheating storyline that we saw in the last 15 pages of a 315-page long book brought way forward and made much more complicated, much more interesting by making it an emotional affair, not a one-night stand. I think this would have been such a compelling read if we had had something, anything, happen in this book. Nothing happened until the last 15 pages. And you cannot expect me to paddle for 291 pages and then expect that in the last 15, I'm going to sprint. No, give me something to like keep me going throughout the book. Don't just plop it at the end and then quickly resolve it, it was a bit with random. no exploration. <laughs> no, I totally agree. There was absolutely zero exploration about what infidelity can do to relationships and how relationships come back from it. And I do find that a really interesting area of literature or fiction and nonfiction, to be honest. I just think it's a really interesting part of life. But they didn't really talk about it at, at all. all. I think that Ashley's right. I think if we're talking realistically and this was real life, it makes far more sense for them to end up as friends. It makes far more sense for them to meet people of their own age, which is not to say in any way, shape or form that relationships with big age gaps can't work. But in this case with these characters, it just didn't seem... The love didn't seem strong enough. And also I think one of the biggest things you need in a relationship is the ability to have conversations. And what I found in these two characters is that they really didn't know what to talk about. They sat in front of the fucking Sopranos every day. Yeah, there was so much unsaid. Like even by the end of the book it was like, are they going to end up together forever? Not that it matters, not that you have to end up together forever, but they both didn't know and they both didn't talk about it. Well, that's like coming back to the sex for a second, that was part of it for me, where I'm like, if you have mind-blowing sex with this person, you have incredible intimacy and like a connection in that sense. Maybe I'm on for the ride and maybe I'm like, okay, they've clearly got something that just clicks and there's fire there. There was zero fire in this relationship. It was tepid at absolute best. And so I didn't care and I didn't believe it when they did end up together. That fast forward at the end as well would have been so much stronger if it was a fast forward to 10 years into the future where Joseph and his wife have just fallen pregnant and he's getting dinner with Lucy and there is still love there. They clearly still have something for each other, but the love wasn't enough to withstand all of the pressures in their life that were pulling them apart. Would have been such a more meaningful surprising, unique ending to a book like this that would have actually fit and actually felt realistic. I don't buy that these two are in love. Do they even say I love you to each other in the 300 and fucking seven pages that I had to read? I don't think so. And if they did, it was so boring I didn't even realise. <laughs> I'm trying to remember. I did read this in January, so forgive me. <laughs> I think it was implied. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, you have written a better book in your head. <laughs> so <laughs> I'll, I'll give you that. You can do the rewrite of Nick Hornby's Just Like You. The only the flaw of your ending is that fuck being the new partner and having your partner go visit their ex every so often. It happens though, right? I think ah, that's realistic. <laughs> Some people do maintain friendships, particularly in an instance like this. Like maybe he ended up with Hannah after all and I would have gone, 
Yes, that you makes, should end up with Hannah. Makes more, it would have made more sense. Okay, then I want you both to give me your star ratings. Annabelle, give me your star out of 10, whatever star we usually rating. do. <laughs> hmm, I would say this book was pretty lukewarm, so I would give it a lukewarm five. Done. That was Michelle. lower than what I, I know, thought. I know, that was lower than it. what I yeah. thought. Um, You've just pulled it out of nowhere. You haven't even thought. <laughs> Look, I'm trying to compare this to past books. My lowest rating in the book club so far has been Jessie 2's A Lonely Girl is a Dangerous Thing. I got more out of Jessie 2's book than I did out of this. I think I gave that book a three or a four, somewhere yes, around that like mark. That. I think I will give this a 2.5 under duress. And I know it's hard. Like I always feel really bad when I give a really low rating because as a writer – I think it's really confronting when someone doesn't like your work. Obviously, this is not a reflection on Nick Hornby. He's done incredible stuff before and far more successful than I'll ever be. This particular book ain't it. I would give it a 6.5 out of 10. I found it an easy enough read. It was a good read in summer and I found the writing funny and charming enough to keep me interested. We will, of course, invite all of your commentary. Come into the book club. Let's have one big conversation because there is so much to unpack. I think the final messaging, though, is that at 63, Nick Hornby could be doing a lot to lift up young authors and perhaps that's what he should be doing with his time if, mm. if according to the both of you, he's not pulling off this book very well anyway. Yeah, and give us your ratings. I'm really curious going forward to to see what you guys yeah. give our book club picks yeah. out of 10. You hear our ratings every episode, so please come and give them to us. Before you write your review on our thread, we'll put one up the morning this episode drops in the Facebook group. Put your rating first and your review second so we can all get an idea. That is a great idea. Thank you so much for listening to this book club episode of Shameless. Next month, we will be reading something that is very different for us, a thrilling crime novel titled The Shadow Box. Michelle and Annabelle are already expecting not to sleep as they read this one. (laughs) It is a little bit out of our comfort zone, but we cannot wait to dive into it. It is again called The Shadow Box by New York Times bestselling author Luann Rice. And boy, has there been fuss. Just one month since its release, this thriller has gone on to be reviewed 16,000 times on Goodreads, with an overall rating of 4.2 out of 5. Here's one review that really got us hooked. The Shadow Box is Luann Rice at her dazzling best. Filled with dark family secrets and wells of deep emotion, this novel will stick with you long after you finished reading oh god i'm nervous already guys thank you so much for listening to this episode if you want to support us here at shameless so we can keep putting out free content every single week make sure you hit subscribe on apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review if you're on spotify click follow otherwise come and join us in our book club community we are shameless book club on facebook there are thirty thousand of you in there we'd love to have you if you're interested Cannot wait. We'll be back in your ears as always on Monday. See you then, guys. Bye. Bye. Hello, guys. Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse. If you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. 
There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.